start, uh, and I want to start off with an apology because this is probably the least enjoyable workshop I've done for ages. I'm just telling you that in advance because I offered step a whole range of things, some of which were absolutely hilarious, pricelessly funny, full of stuff in the red. No, we won't like Easy's one. And then to make it worse, they put me on after Claire Lavelle. Claire, stand up, stand up. Right. Claire Lavelle is brilliant. Um, I've just sat through her workshop. She is absolutely hilariously funny. She's practical, she's full of great ideas. And please, please take her cut and have a look at what she does because she's one of the best I've ever come across. And I actually hate her because, <laughs> because there's loads of folk that were in her workshop that have come back here and they're all going off for Christ's sake. But then Claire, she was lovely and funny and everything. And now we've got David Turner and talking crap. But those of you have heard me and Chris will carry on with that that's what I do. I talk shite for money. But this, Chris tells everybody. So anyway, here's today's tune. Reach out, I'll be there. And I'm sure keep it up because we're talking about adverse childhood experiences. And obviously, there we go to a company 80s. But um, I need Jason to reassure you that it's not that company. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk more about this. Yeah, no, that's it. That's the whole thing. I've forgotten what I'm going up earlier. Um, I can I just say as well how utterly disappointed I am. I have to say this all the time, you know, because that's a sodding technological miracle. Right there, there's music, there's dancing letters, the letters are dancing in time to music. That takes ages, and you're just sitting there, like I've put three bullet points up in a PowerPoint. So if that should happen again at any point later on in the presentation, could we have a slightly more appropriate reaction? Maybe, maybe some grouping, some sense of wonderment, that type of thing would be good. Um, and the other thing I'm really worried about is that I think the knowledge about adverse childhood experiences is, is all over the place just now. Um, so I'm going to say some things which loads of people will be really well aware of, and I'll say some stuff that might sound a bit patronising. But this is what the problem is. The problem is that we know that young people who've got adverse childhood experiences and who aren't supported and don't have any buffering, this is a long-term effect on them. Effectively, what Suzanne Zedek would talk about is that it gets into the biology, it becomes part of who they are. So, and it's not that adversity automatically has this. Loads of young people, we were talking about Chris Kilkenny and a couple of colleagues kindly asking for Chris. Chris has dealt with adversity by being a carer. He's found ways to resolve lots of his issues. And he's doing fine, he's got his struggles and all of that, but he's not irreparably damaged by that experience. But there are some young people who haven't got the buffering, they haven't got that support, they haven't got that person that gets them over the line, so they're stuck in a different kind of place. And it's that idea about regular exposure to unresolved stress. And we're all exposed to stress, aren't we? Aren't we? Yeah, that's fine. I'd like it to be a conversation. It's not going to be a workshop because there's like 91 a year, so what the flip? You can't possibly do a workshop with that. But it's that whole idea that it's that, you know, we've got stress, but we drink. Um, and, and we've got, you know, we've got like strategies sometimes, we've got people who love us and aren't entirely bored with us. Um, we've got all of that stuff going on. Sometimes we get a bit of help with it. Some of us do other things, some of us have got hobbies, I don't, I'm a sad, miserable git. I just do this stuff all the time, that's why I'm here on a Saturday. But some of you, there's a couple of people here, younger people, they've got lives, and that helps. But for loads of young folk, they don't have that, and the stress becomes toxic. It turns into that build-up of cortisol in the brain. And James Doherty, who's one of the leading campaigners, talks about permanently being on guard. You know, he's permanently on guard, and everything escalates immediately into a crisis. 
And the way he does that, and, you know, Louise from Do Be Mindful here, but the way he deals with that, with lots of med medication, lots of mindfulness, all of that stuff, I can't do that because I'm Scottish. And so I, I can't do any of that meaningful Buddhist stuff at all. So I just take drugs, and that works for me. I don't, it's a lot. I'm just being generally irresponsible. But you get the point. And, but the third issue, which is really important, is that of course we all understand the behaviour, but it still has an impact. And that's the stress, isn't it, that we've got to deal with that. We need to find a way. And Paul Dex will talk about the data this afternoon on that. But here we go. Here are the challenges that we're addressing. Right? So there's ACs. There's adverse childhood experiences. We've got that. We've also got arses. Um, that's, that's, a lesser known, that's a lesser known condition which also applies. They're Russian childhood experiences. These are kids that have never allowed out. Um, and some of them are middle class and they're not allowed out because of the risk of abduction obviously because kids from Beerstein are continually being captured by big game hunters and having their heads removed and mounted in a trophy wall so they're not allowed out and then other kids have never allowed out because they've been nowhere to go and you know I was saying I think last year I took a group of kids from Craig Miller to the National Gallery of Scotland and were getting off the bus and I said to the wee girl that was with me I said, have you ever been to the... Because she was smaller than me. Did you see that? I said, have you ever been, have you ever been to the National Gallery before? She goes, Mr. Cullen, I've never been to Edinburgh before. I went, you live in Edinburgh. I tried not this Edinburgh. And, and I thought, yeah, I know. I'm time. That's exactly the action I'm going to So you get that. And you also get VCs, not to be confused with VCs, which are, which are virtual childhood experiences. These are kids who live their entire lives through the tablet. And then you also get DCs, which are detached childhood experiences. Experiences that children have on their own unsupervised with nobody care or love for them. And we actually need to start from getting it right. And one of the things I just want to say around dealing with ACEs is that part of the, the, the inoculation is adverse, sorry, is awesome childhood experiences. And we've got another name for that. Um, we've got an ACA for it and it's called play. And there's something around that that's really important, recognising the importance of play. And John Swinney was brilliant this morning, wasn't he? He was really, really good. But he's still going to do standardised assessment in Team Life, isn't he? <laughs> you know, and, and that's the point I'm trying to make about consistency. And a part of Education Scotland are trying to develop a test which can be administered in the room. Because it's never, <laughs> it's never too early to get that benchmarking right so that you can monitor progress because we're all about professional trust and accountability. And I think it's really important. So I think it's just important that we stand up and say, right, okay, at some point we need to defend the best of early years practice because it works not only in dealing with children's attainment, but it works in terms of dealing with their well-being. And I'll come back to that point as we go through it. And then we also need to recognise the question about ACEs has become suddenly a buzzword, doesn't it? And there are so many events around ACEs and everybody's wondering about saying ACEs and some people know what it stands for and that's all good, but it's not new. Harry Burns, who was the Chief Medical Officer in Scotland for years, he talked about this build-up of cortisol. He talked about why people in Scotland die younger than anywhere else in the world. And we used to think it was diet, but the Americans eat worse than we do. We used to think it was drink, but the Finns, right, they drink more than we do. I mean, the Finns are proper alkies. They're sick. And they may have the best education system in the world, guys, but they're sitting up in the dark with seasonally affected disorders and they're really in it, the baby. And they live longer than we do. And what it worked out is the build-up of stress, it's the build-up of cortisol from unresolved stress within the childhood experience. And it was also, the, and so that was the basis for Griffin. You know, the work that Harry Burns is doing, saying we need to look together through health, 
through well-being, through play, through early years, through school, we need to look at it in a consecutive way. We need to try and get it right for every child. And does anyone remember when GiveFed was a policy rather than a slogan? Yes. Anyone remember that? Where we used to try and do some stuff about it before we started raising attainment. You okay with that? That's a kind of slightly political point. But never mind. And ACEs were also the basis for the work of the violence reduction unit. And I don't know if anybody's been to England recently, but it's carnage down there. Right? You know, it's carnage down there. The worst fear I have is that they will arm Parliament and the Brexit debate will become a succession of knife crime stabbings, won't it? Because that's what we've already got. Massive rise in knife crime in England, not in Scotland. If we have a single stabbing now in Scotland, it's major news. It had to be multiple. Years ago, it had to be multiple before a stabbing in Scotland was news. Right? Because it was the, the levels of violence were so high. And the violence reduction unit was an initiative many of you will know about through the police force where we said we need to treat violence in Scotland as a national health problem and not something that can be addressed through punishment and retribution. That we cannot sentence violence out of Scottish culture and Scottish life, we need to deal with it in a different way. And what they did was recognise that adverse childhood experience and they recognised, and again quoting Crystal Kenny, he said, when John Swinney said at the Scottish Educational Festival two years ago, the difference between success and failure or whatever in life is a quality education. And Chris said, no, it's not. It's having one person who will work with you to help you get over the line, because if you don't have that, you won't get a quality education. And even if you're offered one, you won't be able to take advantage of it. And what I consistently get, I say to people, what is it that matters in education? What is it that makes the difference? The most common answer I will get back from people, primary, secondary, everything else, is relationships. And that's what Claire talks about as well, the power of relationships between staff and between staff and pupils. So there's nothing new in this. But what's happened, what's made it a hot issue, do you like that? Why is it such a hot issue just now? Well, that's the first thing. There's been this most massive, amazing, raising of awareness in Scotland that the film Resilience, the Biology of Stress and the Science of Hope has been shown, it's been taken, it's been toured right across the country, interestingly not the Scottish Government, by two very small organisations, Tina Henry and an organisation called Reconnect, I think, and Suzanne Zedek and an organisation called Connected Baby, and they've taken that film into village halls, They've taken it into clubs. I've done some gigs with it. That's the term I like to use to try and convince myself that I'm not really a tedious education consultant, but I'm some form of minor rock star. Um, so I've done some gigs. I did one in a Brosnan where we showed it. That was interesting. Uh, Kelty. I, I like to travel in the hotspots. I'm a kind of kind of guy. Um, and what's happened with that is you're getting just ordinary folk turning up. You're getting audiences, appearance, carers, teaching assistants, early years workers, you get people turning up because they're curious about children. They're curious about their children, they're curious about other people's children, they're curious about what makes a difference, and they're watching an hour-long documentary that's come from the States, which has got lots of science, lots of, of, of content in it, and they're coming out of it with a powerful message. And the message is, if we put this knowledge into the hands of ordinary people, they will do remarkable things with it. And we're now at a stage where not only have thousands of people seen that film, but in September this year, 2,000 people turned up to the SECC in Glasgow for a conference on adverse childhood experiences. 2,000 people, we couldn't get them apart. And again, there were from all different types of people, parents, carers, 
just ordinary folk who rocked up because they were interested and they wanted to hear this American pediatrician called Nadine Burke Harris talking about the work that she'd done in America to turn people's lives around in her community. And what that means is that where we are now with adverse childhood experiences, we're in a discussion which is let out of the policy corral. That was the problem. One of the problems with GIFIC that the discussion was all in the, the, the policy corral and people sat around and designed information sharing forms and they designed protocols and we talked about confidentiality and we did all of that kind of stuff. Suddenly we've got this discussion and we've got a genuine grass, grassroots movement in Scotland. They're bringing over a guy called Gabor Mackey who's coming I think later on this year and again it's practically a sold out event. Ordinary people interested in science because it helps to make sense of their children's lives. And we've got ACES hubs right across Scotland now. NHS Scotland have provided the funding for them, but in your area, probably wherever you are, there'll be an ACES hub. And quite often that will be led by ordinary women. The woman who runs the ACES hub in Fife is just brilliant. She's had terrible experiences in her own background, which she's overcome. She works in a school in Fife. She leads that group, and a lot of the other people that are involved leading that group are all maybe talked about survivors. They're all people who've had adverse childhood experiences and want to make sure that these aren't visited on other people. And so we're seeing that real change, I think. And there is extensive interest from Scottish government. They've shown the film, they've done all of that, and there's some policy synergy. And I think that was the point I was trying to make to John Swinney this morning that you cannot stand up there and say, we're all about collaboration, but we're appointing a director of scrutiny. You know, we're all about trust, but we're strengthening scrutiny. You cannot do both. And what you can do is say, we're all about addressing adverse childhood experiences, but we'll enter children into competitive testing as early as possible, and we'll use the data from that to chart their way forward. So we need to make sure that there's that genuine synergy in policy. And there also, the other thing about the ACES movement is it's now got such strong links with organisations like Children First, uh, Upstart, who are campaigning for a delayed start to formal education, an extension of kindergarten up to age seven. So you've got that going on, and who cares? Um, and again, who cares have done wonders in Scotland in terms of getting the extension of care provision for looked after young people to the age of 25. Because you don't stop needing help and support when you're 16, particularly if you've got that background. So that's the kind of definition, and at the moment there's a lot of controversy in Scotland about adverse childhood experiences. There's a lot of people worried that what we're doing is we're trying to individualise issues, we're trying to make this a psychiatric, biological issue. And what they're saying, no, this should be a social and political issue. Because the biggest thing that creates adverse childhood experiences is poverty. And I absolutely agree. We need to tackle poverty. Well, one of the things I've been saying is that I'm, I'm quite old. I mean, I know, I know I'm deceptive, <laughs> but I'm quite old, and I'm now at a stage where, as my colleague Tim Brighouse says, I've got less future ahead of me than I've got past behind me, right? So I've got like a massive amount of history and not much to really look forward to, apart from slow decline illness and eventually death. So I've got all that stuff, you know, that's an adverse adult experience, I'm doing, right? But the key thing around this is that I've been waiting for the revolution now all my life, and it hasn't happened. And we all need to say, what are we going to do while we wait for that political change to arrive? We can't wait for poverty to be eradicated to start being kind to children. We can't wait for the eradication of poverty and political action 
to make sure that children get the best chance to change the future. That's the key point. So we need the political action, absolutely. But we can't control that, absolutely. So what we need to do is say, well, what can we do professionally? What can we do to address this issue professionally? And ultimately, I think, what can we do to address it personally? Because one of the things, again, that we need to do, I think, just generally in public debate, is to be a bit gentler with one another. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I get really fed up with the current educational debate and how certain people are that they're right. Um, I don't know if any of you are on that cesspool called Twitter, but if you want to Twitter, people are just like cutting one another's throats metaphorically in Twitter. That's the general tone of Twitter. If it had a voice, it would sound like, yeah, 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 all the time. And people are so certain they're right, you know. And what we need is we need a bit more gentility. I mean, if you look at the Brexit debate, isn't that awful? Isn't that absolutely awful? I mean, I do hate some of the people that are involved in it, and I really would like to punch some of them. But I, think that's, I, I, I do see that as a fault in me, rather than in them. We just need to have a bit more gentleness, a bit more kindness in public debate. But if we look at the professional thing, I think we also need to recognise this. Yeah, you know, because I think one of the things I want to stress all the time is to cash anywhere in the room. So we just need to recognise by the time that you're actually walking the line a lot of time, and because you're mine, I'm going to try and recognise that with you. Because here's the reality: here are the here are the lines you're walking. <laughs> Every day. And yeah, you're walking that line. You're, you're walking that one between survival and surrender. I mean, you're not looking too bad now, but you look crap when it gets to Christmas. I mean, that, that combination of trying to end the term and do the nativity, it's really too much. All that stuff came around. And, and, you know, you're continually living your life between you hope and despair. So everybody's listening to John this morning, right? Woo! So proud, so proud that you get your working Monday and what did he say again? <laughs> <laughs> um, between creativity and compliance, I'm actually allowed to do what I want to do. Between your ambitions and, and their, you know. So, would you agree with that? You're walking these lines. And that's what it does to you. That's pretty much your diary. But one of the most, actually, one of the most plaintive moments I've had in recent living memory was I put this slide up about a fortnight ago. It's been an in service with some teachers in England. And that slide came up, and this plaintive voice in the audience just went, Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just love. And, and it's really, you know, it, it's really complex, isn't it? Because, you know, one of the things I keep talking about is how much more complex things are for you than they are for me. When I started teaching, ADHD hadn't even invented, so nobody could have it. And autism was still ration. So there was no such thing as the EpiPen. So if a kid kicked off, you'd disturb them entirely. That was the only thing you could really do with them. And to be fair, it seemed to work pretty well a lot of the time. But now, you know, but your great worry is that somebody will invent a new psychiatric condition at lunchtime. But then last one, four kids in your class will have it. There'll be a cute 18 parents outside the head's office wanting to know what you're going to do about it. And the national pressure group will form before o'clock demanding government action on the subject. And so you suddenly think, oh, ACs are oh, shit. Sorry, that's a thing. Oh, no, no, another thing. You know what I mean? You've got all of that, you know. And you've not only got all these additional, additional pressures on you, but I mean, again, it's the same thing when I was teaching in, in the autumn. 
in Cape Miller. I had kids in my class from Somalia, and a Roma kid, and some kids from Romania, and some other kids from Eastern Europe. There was even one kid from Edinburgh, and he was the only one that couldn't speak English. Which I but you know, all that complexity in the class, and yet at the same time you're expected to close the attainment gap. So that'll be easy, mate. And my other current favourite, another thing you're expected to do is to prepare children for jobs that don't exist yet. That'll be a piece of key. Name me a job, name me a job that doesn't exist yet. Husky job. There's, there's, there's nobody professionally writing huskies competitively. Fixing the sonic screwdriver. That's another job that doesn't exist yet. I met somebody last week and said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm an image manager. I mean, are you not ashamed of yourself? Can you imagine saying to your mum, I've decided you want me to do, mum, I'm going to be an image manager. Go to your bed now. Not again until you've got a real job. But if your sink's flooding, right, your sink's flooding and it's dripping through into your neighbour's house and you're phoning for a plumber and people are going, sorry mate, I can't help you, I'm only trained for a job that doesn't exist yet. That's really what we're up to. There's all that stuff that we're expected to respond to. And actually when it comes to dealing with adverse childhood experiences, all kids need is that. And that. And, and I guess, you know, this is a kind of simple message really, isn't it? But that's it, these kids, they need a wee bit of structure. Kids can't cope, particularly children who've got no order in their lives, can't cope without structure. A brilliant experience this year, uh, last year rather, I was working in Kibble, which is now the largest residential provision in Scotland. They've got a secure unit, they've got kids there who walk up at night. They've got kids who need to be constantly watched because of the threat to their own safety from themselves harming. And the head teacher said to me, I'd like you to work with a group of young people. And I went, right, fair enough then. Well, there'll be a small group. Said it could be up to 40. <laughs> okay. Uh, I said, how long will it happen for? She said, an hour. I've never taken a laxative from that day to this. That was just it. I started then and I've never stopped. And I said, what do you want me to achieve with them? She said, just inspire them to engage with education. <laughs> and I went in and one of the things I said to them is I said, um, people think you're mental, eh? And they all, they all, just, they all did the exorcist voice. They went, ah, I'm totally mental. And I went, no, you're not. So what happens with you is, when we've got all the words, and you've got none, you just destroy the conversation. When we've got all the arguments, and you've got none, you destroy the discussion. When we think you're out of control, you're in control, because we hate the chaos and you don't mind it, you live in it all the time. When we think you're acting out, you're acting in, and this big guy at the back of the room just looks at me and goes, How long have you known? <laughs> And there's something really powerful about that, isn't it? About children who choose to fail themselves because they do not believe in the prospect of success. And so what we're actually dealing with is that kids need that structure, don't they? They need some sense of consequence and what happens because they can't self-regulate. But it's that balance between structure and love. And that's what we can do. You know, I think some of the key things we can do, it's not, the, the whole ACES thing isn't taking us into new areas of policy or procedure or activity. But the first thing that we can do is we can offer children recognition and identity. I'm sorry, it's an old example, I know. But does anybody remember the London riots? Remember the London riots? Way back when. Some of you were still at school. I know that, but never knew. Try hard. And they said there's looting everywhere. And actually there wasn't. Nobody was looting Marks and Spencers. None of the looters were coming out of Marks and Spencers clutching a girl that lambs will come again and elasticated waist chinos going, look what I've got. None of them were doing. Nobody looted Primark. 
In fact, some of the more socially conscious looters were actually putting stuff into Primark <laughs> to try just to help them to raise their game. <laughs> but they were looting places like Super Dry because what mattered was the label. And for loads of kids, that's what it's about. It's who likes you on Instagram, who follows you, who knows your posts, and whether or not you've got three stripes or four in your shoes. You want to commit social shoots? <laughs> I'll try that again. If you want to commit social suicide in Scottish education, go into school in a pair of plimsolls. Right? You'll not last till the morning break. You will surgically apply under armour trainers to your feet, just in order to survive. And it's that whole idea that young people who don't have a sense of identity, I mean, it's brilliant that we've got colleagues who we talk about LGBT issues this afternoon, because there's a real issue about identity. There's a real issue about knowing who you are, Knowing who you want to be and being prepared to stand up and express an entitlement to have an identity. So these guys will be okay, but those people who can't have an identity, who have no sense of themselves, are lost. If you don't have an identity, you've got nowhere to stand, you've got nowhere to meet challenge, you've got no source of resilience. And just small things that we can do can make a difference. You know, for a primary two teacher, at the end of the year, to tell the primary three teacher something important and personal about that child, and for the primary three teacher simply to agree to ask the child about it within the first two or three weeks they're in the class. Because that stops the child being a number and it makes them a person. And if you're a person and they're a person, that changes the whole dynamic of the relationship. And that's what people like Claire and Paul Dix will talk about, is how, when the adults change, everything changes. It's about who we make ourselves be in the eyes of the child that dictates the response that we get from them. So we can offer that. And I think some of the key things around that, just simple, you know, one of the other simple things, I was really impressed this week. I listened to a guy who had been teaching in Barnsley, and he said there were two texts that I used when I was working with the children in Barnsley. One was Kessel for a Knave, which if you're not familiar with it, the film Kez, story of a young boy, terrible, difficult background, who adopts a falcon and trains it. And it's, a, it's an incredible tale. But when they, watched the, when they read the book and they watched the film, these Barnsley kids recognised people in it. So they were watching the film and then kids were saying things like, that's my auntie Mel! She's still got that hair, dude! They were doing all of that stuff, they recognised that. And the other text that he used with them was To Kill a Mockingbird. And what he was doing, and I think this is really interesting in terms of recognition and identity and adverse childhood experiences, he was using a text which recognised and celebrated the community of the children, and he was using another text which challenged it. Because To Kill a Walking Bird directly addressed the issues of racism and prejudice which were rife within that community. But it's the idea when we think about curriculum, we need to do both that we need to give children the opportunity to see themselves in the curriculum, to have their culture celebrated and validated, but we also need to make sure that some of these elements of that culture are challenged. And that's about recognition and identity as well. Does that make sense to people? So just thinking about the text that we use and how we use them. And the other thing we can do is we can offer kids stability. And one of the key things that we do is that, you know, and I know we can't do it perfectly all the time, but at best we're reasonably consistent. At best we're reasonably consistent. And one of the characteristics of relationships of children affected by their childhood experiences is unpredictability. That they don't know what they'll get. And Harry Bums talked about babyhood and the child who cried and didn't know whether the response would be to be picked up, slapped or ignored. 
and the tension and the stress that then associated with that. We offer that degree of stability. Even when we're born, you know, even just that ability to say, wait a minute, we need to talk, how do we stand up response? All of these things which are basically good practice are powerful. The commitment to care, you know, hugely, hugely important. To give young people the idea that we've got some element, some level of interest in them. Offering them success, and one of the things I would say is if we want to address adverse childhood experiences, we've got to try and think about how we offer children safe failure. Safe failure is hugely important, and what safe failure involves usually is a creative activity where children get to make something where there's not a template for what that something needs to be. Where we give them a question where the answer's not binary, it's not either right or wrong. Where we ask them, how might you solve this problem, rather than what is the solution for this problem. And the more we can do things like that, the more we enable children to have the opportunity to celebrate genuine success. Because what happens otherwise is we patronise them. You know, we give them something to do, they get it wrong, and then we say, but you did really well. And they don't care that they did it really well, all they know is they got it wrong. So it's just about thinking through some of these things that are straightforward and giving them wider experience. And again, one of the key things that we need to talk about is the Raising Attainment Challenge. How can you raise your attainment? How can you find your way to the future if nobody's ever shown you a map? And that's a quote from Chris. How can they find my way to the future if nobody's ever shown me a map? So they need that wider experience. There's a brilliant thing that's well worth looking at called Lifter, L-Y-F-T-A, it's a finished product, and it's, I think it's £100 per teacher just now for three years to get access to the resource. £100 per teacher. Three years you get for it at the moment, because there's a sponsorship offer on it. But what it is, is it takes you into a virtual world where you can meet a whole range of people. And the kind of thing that it does is, it, 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 they show you this young woman who's doing a handstand against the refrigerator or whatever. And then you say, well, what, what, what sport do you think she might be involved in? Or what activity do you think she might be involved in? And I was straight in on yoga, um, yoga, Pilates, you know, maybe a dancer. She's a weightlifter. And it's that whole idea of looking at a brilliant exercise in lifter, which they did, which was astonishing. They showed children six pictures of other people, and they asked them to rank them on the basis of compatibility. And then what they do is they meet these people and they do the exercise again. And there's a guy, Mohammed, who was number five in the first troll and number one in the second. And it's just these simple ways of offering that wider experience so children get beyond narrowness and prejudice, get that wider experience that takes them out of their world and shows them a different map. Does that make sense to people? And it's something I think it's worth having a wee Google and a wee look at. <coughs> but we get that, don't we? We get caught up because there's conflicting targets. And again, John did it this morning. And I, I honestly, I love what he did. And I really respect him. And I really enjoyed his session. But we still have a raising attainment challenge. And the problem that you've got is that when somebody says, you know, we, we need to raise attainment, but we need to do so much more. But what have you been measured on? And that's the key thing all the time, isn't it? That we've got these conflicting outcomes and targets. Because it would be easier to raise attainment in your class if you didn't have disruptive children in it. Um, and, and we need to face up to that. And it would be easier to motivate the whole class if you didn't have that. I mean, at the moment, despite the PEF money, what we're seeing, I think, is we're seeing money flowing into the system. 
at one end through PEF, but it's draining out at the other end through cuts in local authority budgets. So what we're not necessarily seeing is we're not seeing a net financial gain in the schools. And, and the levels of nature of support are really, really difficult to, to establish. There's less and less central support, there's less residential establishments, there's less therapeutic support, and if you find an educational psychologist, just nail their feet to the floor, <laughs> right, right down there, and hang on to them, because they're like hen's teeth, aren't they? You know, all the time, I was the director of children's services, I, I was the head of education, and this is absolutely true. I had three weeks when I had a fully staffed psychiatric service. Three weeks. And the rest of the time, we were working short, sometimes short for principal psychologists. Now you might be sitting thinking, well, I'm, I wouldn't really miss them. But that's a different argument altogether. The levels of support aren't there, the costs and demands aren't high, and then you've got that thing about accommodating challenge versus rigidity. Um, lots of schools now are saying, we need to take a hard line, we need zero columns. You know, there's all of that stuff about schools that are insisting on standards, and uniform, and all of that. How do you accommodate challenge within that? So what I'm suggesting is, there's the things we need to think about. And I'm sorry, I know this isn't a workshop, but hopefully it's helpful. First thing I think we need to think about is how we give children that sense of security in place, in self, and in others. So three big things. And all of the things that we've already talked about, about giving children that sense of themselves, the use of text like Tesco for a Eve, in the Scottish context in secondary, William McIlvany's work. I think there are lots of really good writing in the Scottish context. Jackie Kay, again, coming back to LGBT issues. Jackie Kay and Trumpet. Lots of wonderful, wonderful Scottish texts which give people different ways of identifying and seeing themselves in literature. And if you're insecure and lack identity, that's what you need to do. You need to see mirrors where you can recognise yourself in them. So I think lots are in that that's important. Give them that sense of self and then among others. And again, one of the key things that happens all the time is lots of young people that you're working with are brilliant as long as they don't leave their own immediate area. You know, they, they can be brilliant in that. That's the whole thing about gang culture, isn't it? You know how to behave. You know how to work in that context. You know, and it's that brilliant thing. If you're a hard man, that's great, isn't that? A classic Scottish thing. Don't mess with me. Right, okay, you've got all of that kind of stuff going on. But what they can't do, what these people can't do is they can't pass. They can't move into other contexts, other societies, other social groupings, so they're completely limited. And again, it's that whole thing around lifter and some of the other approaches of reading. You know, how do we put children into different worlds and get them to see different people? And again, we'll get lots of that around, hopefully, some of the discussions about equality and diversity and all that, where, where we let people see themselves as part of another world rather than see them stuck in their own. And there's nothing new about any of this. That's the key thing. Because it's just all of that trying to build resilience. And, and again, apologies for banging on about it. But if you really want to change children's attainment, you don't make them better at first questions, you make them better at last questions. If you're a secondary teacher and you've ever marked an exam, you'll know that kids' marks tend to go like that. And what makes a difference between them passing and failing, and whether they're an A or a B, is the steepness of the decline. So if they go straight like that, they fail. But they lose marks in the latter part because they look for the question they're comfortable with, they do that first, and then they come to the questions they're not sure about. And what we need them to do is to look at that question and say, what is this question asking me? What can I bring to answering it? How can I put the two together? 
And so there was a big question around, do you teach children to do last questions, or do you try and make every question a first question? Because what we do a lot of the time is when children struggle, we give them more and more revision. We try and get them to remember more, we try and get them to retain more, we go over things again and again and again in the hope that the penny will finally drop. And actually what we do is we disempower them from, from learning to cope with challenge. So does that make sense to people? So that idea of thinking about how we do that, sorry, I just want to check the programme because I've no idea that's a different thing altogether. I just want to check the programme and see how long I'm supposed to be rabbiting on for. Right, that's fine, we'll be fine. Okay, so you've got that, I think, this idea of building resilience. And my favourite exercise, which a number of you have heard me talk about before, is I ask people often to answer the question for me, what is beauty? Because you can't get it wrong. And if I was to ask you to say, let's have a conversation about what is beauty, and I gave you five minutes to do it, within five minutes, you would more or less all be having a cerebral, abstract, conceptual conversation, where you'd be talking about perception, and you're talking about reality, you'd be talking about all of these things. I've had people do this and saying things like, beauty is the presence of the divinity in the everyday. I've had people inventing Zen Buddhism. I've had all sorts of stuff going on in that kind of conversation. Because it's safe, you can't get it wrong, and people can talk freely. And it's about thinking about how we recreate that opportunity for children. Come back to that in a minute as well. And that breeds capability and that sense of control. And the more we allow children to make things, shape things and find meaning, the more they have that sense that they can shape their own life. So there's my questions for you. Right? So when you're going away from today thinking about ACEs, and they're exactly the same questions I think that would be posed from Paul Dix's book. Is our practice listening and respectful? And that's the key thing, again. You know, I want structure for kids. I want to know that I'm safe in a classroom. And again, you know, I keep, keep telling people the same thing. When I started teaching, my biggest fear was that my classes would all come into a reenactment of Lord of the Flies five minutes after I entered the room. And I was a secondary teacher to trade. And I spent most of my first year terrified. You know, and I thought I'd try primary. Um, and I did, and, and I taught P1. And, and I walked in, I thought, this will be a piece of cake, look at them, they're tiny, what harm could they ever do you? And I, I completely forgot that I'd read Gulliver's Travels, and, and I was going to do some literacy work with them, and I sat down in my best early years voice, and I said, I'm going to read to you now, and I nodded at them, because I thought that was a good way to engage them, and they're all nodding back at me, and then I said, you might like to come a bit closer. <laughs> Didn't they actually mean that close? Suddenly one of them had his fingers inside my shoe. They were touching my leg. They were just getting closer and closer. I thought I was going to die like John Snow in the Battle of the Bastards and Game of Thrones. I thought I was going to roll in my five-year-old body. And I didn't think I could use the standard secondary technique. Back off! <laughs> Because I heard about Jenny Mosley and I knew I was kind. And, and so what you do is you try and formulate strategies that make you feel safe sometimes. But actually the best way to feel safe is to have established a relationship. One of the things I do now is if I'm doing in-service, I will always try and be there early and I will try and speak to everyone in the room before I present. And it changes the whole dynamic of the session. Right, so when people come in in the morning, I'll go around and go, hello, I'm David, I'm going to speak to you later. If I'm working in England, I go, this will help you get used to the accent. You might be able to understand me, I'll go, oh, you say? So we go, we go through all of that, so it just changes the dynamic. And that's what Paul Dix is advocating that we do with children. And it's just that whole idea about how we change that. And, and the other key thing as well, is that I've, I've learned a lot about, 
is that no matter how much children are struggling, they don't want to be patronised by their work. They thrive best with challenge. And the more we can give them a challenge, provided it's not overly binary, the more they'll rise and respond to that. Kids like to be engaged by a task. That's why they, they, they'll, they'll game for hours. They'll do really difficult things in gaming because the challenge is there for them, but the experience is structured and reassuring. And it's about thinking how we can get that in. And the idea about gifts and strengths, loads of people in the room will be sick hearing this, but my favourite example, I was in Kilmarnock College and the principal said to me, you need to speak to Nicholas Perry. I went, how will I know him? She said, you just will. I went off, I found him, he had a white shell suit on, I assumed he was getting married. And he got the whole thing, he got the tattoos, he got the piercings, he got everything. And I said, Nicholas, I've been told I need to speak to you. Why would that be? He goes, I've been in 14 schools, eh? And I went, really? Were you a travelling family? No, was your dad in the No, I said, why were you in so many schools? He goes, oh, I was kicked out of 13. And I said, what did the 14 school do right that the other 13 did wrong? Didn't they tack me till I was two weeks after 16? They didn't have time to complete the paperwork. And I said, why did you have so many problems? He goes, I had the full hand, eh? I went the full hand, he went, yeah, I had the dyslexia, I had the dyspraxia, I had ADHD, I was on the autistic spectrum, and I had a peanut allergy. And it's <laughs> the peanut allergy was the main thing holding them back. And I said to him, you're doing really well at college, aren't you? And he went, aye. And I went, have you still got the full hand? And he goes, aye. And I said, so what made the difference? And he said, somebody just saw past the labels. And there's something really powerful about that. Because I've already heard people here, you know, and you are the saints of the education profession because you're here on a Saturday talking about pet kids. And, and there's a danger, isn't there, that that becomes the label that we teach rather than the child. So just that bit about based on gifts and strengths. And built-in feedback, kids needing to know how they're doing. John Hattie's work, three months acceleration in the pace of learning through simply talking to young people about their work, listening to what they say. Creating opportunities where they can rehearse, redrafted feedback and allowing space for more. And that's it, that's Paul Dixie's book and all of the themes that are buried in that this afternoon. So in terms of dealing with ACES, that's it. You know, that's the sort of learning that we're talking about, which is based on the gifts and not the deficits, which is active at some point, sorry, which is active at some point, but it's not simply about delivery. I mean, I get really hacked off if you cannot tell the difference between in-service for teachers and postmen. Um, and you get a lot of that, don't you? Education Scotland will love the word delivery. Right? You know, and it's like deliveries when you pass on somebody else's messages. And it's that whole idea that there needs to be an activity and young people need to have opportunities to find meaning. Whatever we do should allow completion. As far as possible, we need to create some tasks which allow that, a bit of variety, a bit of motivation, and we should respect disciplines. I mean, John Swinney this morning, right, it's not all about the subject, so we need to respect disciplines. Kids need to know what maths is, they need to understand what history is, they need to have a sense of chronology, they need to understand relationships between people and place and all of that. There needs to be respect for discipline, and by the way, it would really help if in amongst all these benchmarks, and experiences and outcomes, somebody would just say to us, here's the core stuff you need to know in science. Because I think if you knew that, you could just relax, couldn't you? You could just chill, and then you could focus on the kids. Because you wouldn't be obsessed with trying to second guess what you needed to do with your planet. And that's the worry, that if, if you all get to reinvent the curriculum for your school, you won't do it. Because you'll be thinking not about Walt and not about Wolf. You'll be thinking about wife which is, what would the inspectors like, right, or wealth, right? It's a different kind of thing altogether, we worry about that. So we need to know what it is we're expecting. And assessment needs to be in terms of breadth and depth. 
So with all of these things put together, just this last two or three things I'm going to do, and then you get to be free and going with your lunch. I think there's a danger at the moment that children, particularly those with adverse childhood experiences, become trapped in this triangle. So what we're encouraged to do is we're encouraged to ask children to give us a performance, possibly a test, possibly an exercise or whatever. On the basis of that, we then decide on their ability. And just to make sure we're right, we put them into an ability set, which is a lot easier to get into than it ever is to get out of. Right? So, you know, that we, we, we set them, and then on the basis of that decision we take about their ability, we decide on their potential. And the trap is that what we do is, we say, if that's your potential, that's the performance you're capable of giving. So what the triangle does is it turns into a vicious circle. Does this make sense to people? And the whole culture of benchmark, target set, all of that, traps children in a situation. And what we need to do, particularly for children with adverse childhood experiences, is we need to give them that opportunity to surprise us. One of my favourite quotes this year was I was working with the staff from Moor House, which deals with challenging and difficult young people, and I said to them, I said, can you sum up your job in a sentence? And one of them said, yes, my job is the recalibration of hope. And I was absolutely blown away by that. Because if you look at the research that's done particularly by Michael Barber, he talks about aspiration and ambition being one of the key drivers in terms of extending the performance of children. So recalibration of hope, allowing children to wish for and hope for more. That's the inoculation against how long have you known. That's the inoculation against the child embracing failure. It's so, so important. But if we trap children in that triangle, then what we do is we lose that opportunity for recalibration. So we do direct teaching, we do recovery, and we do revision. And the child remains stuck on train tracks, not allowed to give us the evidence that would allow us to rethink who they are. So we need to think about how we give children the opportunity to surprise us. And if there had been some area here, I would have then said discuss, but you don't have time for that anyway, because it's not about you, it's fundamentally about me really. Um, but, you know, you can basically discuss it over lunchtime, but when you do, can I encourage you please just to think about using this? And, and Claire used something very like it in our last session. But I think this is the most useful tool. When you're dealing with behaviour or whatever else, when you're dealing with adverse childhood experiences, conversation when you sit down and you write down in post-its what you actually do with these children in order to manage behaviour and in order to support them. Write down in post-its and then sit with your colleagues and agree where the post-its go on that graph. So that you're identifying what the things are that you do that matter and what are the things that take up a lot of time and effort? Form filling, reporting, lots of these things that pass things on. And what you do here is you identify the breakable plates. And it's that key idea all the time. It's not about doing anything differently. It's about making the best of what you do in New Orthodoxy. And two quotes from John Hattie. John Hattie said, There is no answer in terms of methodology or approach. It's simply about consistently looking at the impact of what you do on the achievements and indeed the lives of your students. It's not about looking for a single script. It's not about looking for a single solution. It's just continually saying, what is it that I can do? And talking and reflecting with your colleagues to strengthen that. And that's it. In case you're wondering what's been going on for the last hour, I'm going to do David Cameron. <laughs>
there's some music in the background, it's just not very loud. I hope that for some other time I've been on fire. If you want the presentation or any other information, that's my email address. I've got a website which I never update. That's my Twitter tag. And that's my mobile number, because I'm basically fundamentally a lonely and insecure person. And I really love it if you phone me and ask me out. That would be brilliant. Okay, thanks for your attention.